everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed Like Education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast Podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd, and today we've got something a little bit different. We're still going to talk about a new article, the Profivap trial that was effectively published with the Society of Critical Care Medicine or SCCM conference. But we're going to start the podcast by talking about the conference itself. And then instead of an old article, we're going to go through our neglected mailbag. Finally, Todd, how are you? You've been traveling a lot before, both before and after the conference. Yeah, the last couple of weeks has been a lot of travel, including the Society of Critical Care Medicine, SCCM conference in Phoenix, which was a good conference. There were a couple of studies that came out during the conference that I think were provocative and makes you kind of think about your practice and should you adopt some new things and that sort of stuff. Phoenix in general was nice, but I'll be honest, it was a bit colder than I thought it was going to be. It was cold, cloudy, rainy, you know, like I was like getting ready to go to Phoenix. It's going to be like sunny and warm like we had a little bit of a cold snap here where we live and i it was definitely it was certainly warmer it was like 40 degrees warmer but i was expecting to be like warm yeah so much for the it's a dry heat yeah it was neither dry nor a heat yeah no for sure for sure yeah and and definitely like i don't know if they get a lot of rain in phoenix i'm assuming not because the sidewalks are just like slippery the sidewalks were not designed with like oh like this sidewalk could get wet in mind yeah i don't think they get a ton of rain but uh but yeah i agree uh, so did you slip and fall on the sidewalk i almost did yeah. almost did i didn't i didn't hit the pavement almost so broke a hip first things first though we had a couple of listeners say hi at the seccm conference both todd and i were there like we were talking about todd just you know couldn't get away from me he likes to follow me around you know like a shadow but you know that's all to say if you see us at a conference do say hey and stay and chat for a bit we host a podcast for crying out loud so we like to talk i think ats in may will be the next big conference it, it was my first time at the sccm conference and uh, i've done a little bit of a tour day critical care conferences in the last couple of years since covid restrictions were lifted i had fun it was a good conference it was nice to have a, a little bit more focused of a conference compared to the enormity which is ats which is what i'm more used to uh, i thought there was a good balance in the sessions between recently published papers and evidence but also having room for teaching and how to care for patients not that those two things aren't linked but you know as you know sometimes evidence-based medicine we can lose the forest for the trees what, what did you think about the conference both this iteration in phoenix and you know sccm in general as it compares to other critical care conferences i mean i thought this one in phoenix was pretty usual for sccm uh, one of the things that I like about the conference is, is that SCCM tends to have the widest diversity of critical care. So, you know, ATS, for example, the American Thoracic Society Conference is a lot of pulmonary critical care and not as much non-pulmonary critical care. Just has a little bit more non-pulmonary critical care, but still tends to be pulmonary, thoracic, cardiac focused. And then at SCCM, there's really a wide range of critical care. So you see some pulmonary critical care, but you see a lot of neuro, you see some trauma, you see some surgical, post-surgery critical care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the one time a one conference that I go to where I feel like I get sort of a breadth of critical care as opposed to just a little bit of a deeper dive in a in a single kind of uh, subspecialty of critical Which care. Which also can be a little bit of an echo chamber, right? So like the way we take care of things is... What? Pul- what? <laughs> and pulmonary and critical care may be different from how a, a surgical critical care, anesthesia, trauma critical care person might take care of a, a similar process. And so one of the things that I like to tell the house staff when I'm on service is, well, this is is 
how I manage hemorrhagic shock and some of these things I've learned from working with our trauma surgeons because, I mean, who's better at hemorrhagic shock than they are? Yeah, I think when you listen to non-pulmonary critical care or listen to other subspecialty critical care, you need to take a step back and say to yourself, do I think what they're doing or their evidence and their results are generalizable to my patients or are they different? Unfortunately, sometimes we don't recognize why they might be different. One of the great examples is tight glucose control. Tight glucose control, when it came out, was done largely in a cardiothoracic population, and it worked. It like improved outcomes. And then when it was tried to be generalized to a medical population or a sepsis population, it didn't look like it worked. And at my institution, it took me a couple years to actually get the institution to realize that they want to standardize everything across the different subspecialty ICUs that we have. And it took me a couple years to get them to realize that sometimes the evidence suggests that we should be doing things differently. An example that you gave that I can build on is the hemorrhagic shock. The trend in trauma right now for major hemorrhagic shock is to give whole blood. Yeah, whole blood. And we aren't close to doing that in at least our practice in the medical ICU. Maybe it's the right thing. Maybe we should be. Maybe we should be giving whole blood too. Or maybe it's different when you have a GI bleed as opposed to when you've had somebody knife you or when you have liver laceration from blunt trauma or whatever. But I think those are questions that are worth trying to answer in the in the coming you know, whatever few years to better understand optimal treatment for our patients. Yeah, no, certainly. I think to steal a word from your lexicon, it's certainly provocative to think about, well, how do different subspecialties think about managing similar problems that you see in your ICUs? And sometimes, right, the surgery colleagues are raised to use balanced fluids, usually lactated ringers, and we in medicine were raised to use saline. And when we... There's no difference, obviously. Yeah. When we, you know, rigorously study those, it appears that balanced fluids may be better for our patients in the medical ICU also. So, you know, I think I'm an evidence-based guy and... I love having evidence about the stuff that we do. And there's a lot of stuff that we currently do that we don't have great evidence for. And it's ripe for somebody to study. Yeah, you know, when I hear you or Matt Semler, other people who were pivotal in the balanced crystalloids trials, you always talk about, well, you know, there's a small effect size, but over millions and millions of patients, this effect size is a real size. For me, I think the more convincing argument is the ultimate result of the trial was the opposite of what you thought. As a medicine person doing this trial, you're going to say, oh, saline was better or saline's no difference. And you found the exact opposite. That's something when I talk about this trial, something that I bring up all the time, how, hey, we were wrong from the medicine side about this entire topic. Yeah, but I mean, you're you're still young in your critical care career and critical care research career. If you do this long enough, it gets really easy to say we were wrong because we're wrong about a lot of things, which is why we have to, we need to study them. I mean, you know, it's one of the jokes that I have is that what we do in the ICU that we think is right is at best, oftentimes not beneficial. And unfortunately, at other times, it's actually the wrong thing to do. It's harmful for patients. So, you know, I think studying what we do and learning the best way to care for our patients is is the best way to advance medicine and, and help our patients uh, get through their critical illness. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, bringing things back to the conference, there were a lot of guidelines published this year. I don't know if that's normal for the SCCM conference, but it just felt like guideline session after guideline session. Uh, off the top of my head, there were guidelines for fever management, acute liver failure, and then there was this norepinephrine dose standardization, which I don't think I can do justice talking about. But there was another, yet another discussion of steroids on ARDS, which I think we should at least touch on. These were part of SCCM guidelines on steroids that encompass community-acquired pneumonia, septic shock, and then ARDS. Before diving back into the ARDS portion, 
They ended up recommending corticosteroids for patients with severe bacterial community-acquired pneumonia, a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. Severe CAP, if you go off of the Cape Cod study, is basically ICU-level oxygen support, high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, invasive mechanical ventilation. There were some nuances, but that's how I remember that. Then for septic shock, they have a conditional recommendation with a low quality of evidence for corticosteroids and septic shock. They also recommended against short, high-dose steroids for septic shock, which is hydrocortisone 400 milligrams per day for three days. I don't think any of that part is a surprise. I didn't actually know where the 400 milligrams in three days came from, but the guidelines suggest as you read them, it was a dosing regimen from probably older studies. Anything to add there? I suppose the only variation in my practice from these guidelines is that I don't blanket use steroids in all septic shock. I typically use steroids in more severe shock. So for example, the patient with sepsis from a urinary source coming on on 10 mics per minute of norepinephrine and rapidly titrated down to five and then off on arrival to the ICU, I'm not really giving that patient steroids. Man, there was a lot for me to take in there. And as I get older and older, trying to remember all the things that you say sometimes, you know, is, is hard. Could you hear me? I'm going to have to probably get a pen and paper and take notes for the future. Apparently you couldn't hear me. Can I hear you? What? So the guidelines, the guidelines at SCCM, I think are, is a new push for them. They have a new interest and emphasis on guidelines, and they've actually changed a little bit of the way that they do them. The methodology and a bunch of the data extraction and then the analyses are actually all done by non-clinical people. They're methodologists that are all doing it, which I guess you could argue may be bad, but it also may be good because I think they don't bring a bias into the data. They don't have a bias because they're not clinical folks and don't think they know the right answer to these clinical questions. The other thing that I found interesting is, is that a number of those guidelines there just aren't data on. Like I went to the acute liver failure session and they kept saying, well, there really are limited data here. So this is an expert opinion and they're really limited data here. So this is an expert opinion. And I always struggle a little bit when there are no data and essentially the guidelines are expert opinions because that's kind of a review article or a how I do it article and not as much a guidelines. Steroids, back to steroids. I don't think we'll ever get rid of, get done talking about steroids. It doesn't seem that way, does it? Yeah. I, I find it funny that they list steroids for severe pneumonia as a strong recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence. And then they list steroids for septic shock as conditional with a low quality of evidence. Because there's lots more evidence in the septic shock realm of what steroids do. And I think the problem is, is that the results have been a little bit conflicting. I think, and I think Simon Finfer probably said this at one point, uh, I think ultimately steroids and septic shock probably get you out of shock somewhat earlier, a day earlier or something like that, a small amount of time earlier, and they don't affect overall mortality and other outcomes. And you know, when you're in a ICU with limited capacity and you need a bed, getting somebody out of shock a day earlier could be a big deal. So it might be a real clinical benefit more for the system, maybe even than for the patient. And you avoid some of the adverse effects of catecholamines and whatnot. Yeah, potentially. I agree. Um, you know, to me, it just seems like the database evidence base for steroids and septic shock is much larger and more rigorous than the and I like Cape Cod as a trial, but it's sort of a trial out there. There are a few other trials of steroids in severe community-acquired pneumonia, but Cape Cod is really the one that's driving the recommendations. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and for the steroids and septic shock, one of the, I don't think anyone's ever done this, but if you look across the trials of steroids and sepsis, at least severe sepsis, septic shock, by the SEP2 criteria, which a lot of these trials were done under, it seems to me that the trials that enroll the sicker patient population 
are the ones that showed a mortality benefit. So both Anon trials from France demonstrated, I mean, I, I remember the first time I read this as a, as a resident, and I was like, oh, like, these patients weren't that sick. The average morepi dose was one. And then I realized that they meant one mic per kg per minute as opposed to one mic per minute, which is what we, what we use here. And it's like, oh, their average norepi dose was 70. Oh, my goodness. That's a sick population. Yeah, really? only 70 if they enrolled pediatric patients in our part of the yeah. world. It's like 100. Yeah, a mic per kg per minute is 100. Yeah, or more. So I mean, that's why that's why I said like I typically give steroids for the sicker shock when you have higher dose suppressors as a surrogate mar- marker of being how sick you are with your shock with your sepsis because I feel like that's where the mortality benefit might come from. I, I did hear uh, a couple people talking actually about the steroids and septic shock guidelines presentation in that session, and uh, I started laughing because the one said, "Well, what do you think we should do with fludrocortisone?" Uh, and I was like, here we go again, still in that area of what should we do with fludrocortisone? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before. And so for, in the sake of time, let's not talk about that right now. SCCM. Yeah. You may be able to put whatever episode it was in there. Yeah. Just plug the entire episode right here. Uh, SCCM also weighed in on steroids and ARDS, uh, which as a recap of the last episode, ESICM did not mention in their guideline update and ATS had a conditional recommendation for the SCCM also had a conditional recommendation and a moderate level of evidence to recommend corticosteroids for critically ill patients with ARDS. Without spending too much time rehashing all the arguments from last episode, they mentioned that they saw an, quote, overall desirable effect, but there was uncertainty since a few small positive trials had large contributions to the overall positive effect of corticosteroids, and half of those included patients with COVID-19 ARDS. They also cited the the largely unknown prevalence of undesirable effects of short-term steroids and ARDS. The reason that I separated this out from the steroids and septic shock and community-acquired pneumonia is because I was listening to the pro-con debate of steroids and ARDS, and listening to the con side, uh, Hallie Prescott, who did a fantastic job, made me realize that she verbalized something better than I did on this podcast. Yeah, that's not a surprise. Yeah. First of all, she does a really nice job with communication and verbalizing things, and second of all, let's take a look at the comparator. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a fair comparison, but she did a better job, I'm, I think. What I lack in ability and communication, I make up for in humility. <laughs> can't be said for the other side of the mic here. She wrote a counterpoint perspective and chest on this topic in 2021, which we'll link into the addition of the guidelines in the show description. And the figure in the paper basically describes the gradation between both the indication for steroids and how strongly you feel like you should be giving steroids and then the risk of complication from steroids. And my takeaway from her argument, which is my original thought, just said better, and you already said it, but uh, I just listened to a smarter person than me and taking their opinion as my own, which is also true. But if you have a strong indication, you should give steroids. And one of those stronger indications is for those with more severe ARDS, uh, a PDF ratio of less than 200 and a PEEP of greater than 10, 24 hours after being intubated if you use DEXA ARDS. Uh, so when you asked me if I would give steroids for ARDS and I said yes, what I meant is if they had severe ARDS. The example from last time, you mentioned, oh, you had a patient with pancreatitis and ARDS. And so if they were ARDS on the ventilator with a PDF ratio of 150, 100 or so, I would give that patient uh, steroids. But if they were on 45 liters and 80% of high flow oxygen, I probably wouldn't. I think that's where that comes in. I'm just sitting across the table at you watching you wave your hands and try and explain this. And we may need to get Holly on as a guest because I'm not sure the listeners are going to have any understanding of what you just tried to explain. It's just saying that if... Oh, you're going to try and explain it more. Yes, I'm going to try to explain it again. Perfect. It's like, it's like 
how when you have isn't there a phrase that we use if you're explaining <laughs> you're losing yeah yeah <laughs> it's just saying that it's not all ARDS it should be you should have a stronger and stronger indication and severity of illness is one of those strengthening indications I'm sure we won't get any questions from the listeners on that uh, any last thoughts on the conference one of our colleagues said that her main complaint was IT support now the app was difficult to navigate but I mean if I'm being honest I don't really know of a conference app that I would consider good uh, yeah, none of the gaps are good. I agree with that. I usually rush to delete those things off my phone the first second I can. There's there's always some things about conferences that can be frustrating, and they happen at SCCM. One of the frustrating things to me is that they misjudge how many people might be interested in a session. And so you get blocked out of a session because there's not enough room, and the fire marshal says you can't have another person in this room and that sort of stuff. And then you watch someone leave the room, and like, why can't I just take that person's right. spot? It's like being at a bar and there's a bouncer. Yeah, so that happened a couple times with sessions that obviously were popular sessions. And it's not like they were in rooms that only sat 40 people. They were in big rooms, so they had a lot of people in them. And then sometimes conferences, when they have that, will have like an overflow area where you can still hear the talk and that sort of stuff. But I didn't think that was an option at SCCM. Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah. But other than that, I, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was a typical SCCM conference. There was good uh, trial results there. There were good data there. There was good discussion about, you know, new data, old data. How do we care for these patients? How do we best try and treat our patients so that they have the best chance to get good outcomes? No, I think that's very fair. And that's a good segue into uh, our next topic where we're going to be talking about Profuvap. For ceftriaxone to prevent early ventilator-associated pneumonia in patients with acute brain injury, it was published in January of 2024 in Lancet Respiratory Medicine by, and pardon my pronunciation, Professor Dayat Vizelier. First things first, acronym. You ready, Todd? Yeah, is this an acronym? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the first question. I found their project title on their clinicaltrials.gov registration. It's Prevention of Early Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia in Brain-Injured Patients by a Single Dose of Ceftriaxone. So, I mean, PR, prevention. The O, o associated? Of, of, oh, I was going to do the middle of associated. And then you, you get lost after that because the VAP is... VAP, ventilator Yeah, pneumonia. that one makes sense to me. So it's, it's half an acronym. Uh, and they probably didn't like ProVAP. Yeah, ProVAP. Yeah, that, that'd be pretty bad. So what are, you, what are your initial thoughts, Todd? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it has to get knocked down a few levels just because I'm not sure of the acronym. Uh, the, the actual title, the actual term, ProVAP, I kind of like, and it describes what the study's about, and, uh, you know, it kind of rolls off the tongue, and I kind of like it. But the fact that Profi kind of was just uh, taken more from a concept than an acronym from the trial, I think, makes me give it a six and a half or and seven. They were, and they were close, too. Like, PHY is, is what they needed. It's like patients having brain injury, the Y from injury. I mean, I, I've this is coming off the top of my head, but you could probably no, make it's not. PHY. You spent like hours thinking about that. It's only like only like two. I think overall as a title, I'm probably in the like six out of ten range. I feel like there's 50 interventions that have been studied for VAP prophylaxis, and this is specifically for patients with brain injury. So you're just going to blow through the acronym. Yeah. Can we at least make it a little bit more specific? Cephi prophyvap. Cephi prophyvap brain. Now it's long, though. Yeah, it's a little bit too long. Not not a, not a huge fan, I think, is my conclusion. What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I think, you know, I said six and a half or seven. I think we're probably thinking the same thing. I just tend to be a little nicer than you. We've talked about that before. Uh, we've talked about that prophylaxis before. But I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't start this topic talking about how well we've talked about this exact topic 
before on this podcast in a little bit of a different light. When we had our friends of the pod, Naomi Hammond and Anthony Delaney from the Anzix group on the podcast to talk about Sudoku, you recall that's the trial of selective GI decontamination. But when we were discussing the results, they pointed out that the patient population in which there might be the most benefit, which was backed up using data from their study, are those with neurologic injury. And then separately, they had further inquired about the part of the de- what part of the decontamination is the most important, the oral pace versus the IV component. And there, they suggested that it might be the IV part. So, I mean, this study is, is that, right? It's a IV antibiotics on the clinical outcomes in patients ventilated with neurologic injury. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's some nuances that we'll get into. But in general, it's that concept. Agreed. I think it's worth bringing up, and it's a point that we'll come back to at the end, is the emphasis on, quote, early VAP. I'm not sure if you fully understood this, but they they stated that they chose... It means it happens early yeah. in the ventilation course. They chose ceftriaxone as a drug because of the organisms commonly recovered in, quote, early VAP. Uh, they define this as VAP occurring between days two and seven of intubation, this might be a difference in the microbial profiles in between France, where the study was performed, and here in the United States. But I feel like when I think about VAP and the organisms that might be covered with that, it's not organisms that are normally covered with ceftriaxone. Yeah, although I think I think early VAP stuff is in general. It's just that we, I think, don't think of early VAP out to seven days. And they even comment in the article at one point that because brain injury patients don't really increase their risk of VAP until day eight. They thought they would extend the definition here of early VAP to day seven. But if you said to me, what do you consider early VAP? I think in my brain, at least I have day two to day five as early VAP and then after day five as as a later VAP. And I think the organisms that we commonly think of like Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter and Staph aureus, those organisms tend to be more prevalent in late VAP than they are in in early VAP. I mean, as we listened to this presented at SCCM, you said to me, is this early VAP or is this just community-acquired pneumonia? Uh, uh, Day five, it's probably early VAP. Day two, uh, it's really hard to know. Did this patient kind of already have this before whatever their brain injury was happened? Or is this really a downstream effect of their brain injury? Yeah, no, that's fair. And the, the last thing I think we should bring up about this study is that, you know, like most studies now, something similar has been assessed before and for VAP many times before, but in a similar-ish population was the Antarctic trial, uh, which was looking at two days of three times a day, a mox clav in patients who were undergoing targeted temperature management after cardiac arrest. So those were definitionally comatose patients. Correct. And for full clarity, they were excluded from Profivap. Yes, yes. Uh, but they showed a decrease in, quote, VAP, uh, but no difference in clinical outcomes of ventilator duration or mortality, anything from that perspective. Not the exact same population here. Probably sicker from just an expected mortality perspective, but it, it kind of sets the table here. In the Antarctic trial, I suspect that a lot of the outcomes were... Uh, driven by the cardiac arrest? Yeah, driven by the neuro injury from the cardiac arrest. And prevention of VAP didn't necessarily alter those because it didn't alter the, the neurologic function after cardiac arrest. As opposed to these patients maybe have a better prognosis and therefore a VAP in these patients may actually have more clinical effect on outcomes than they would in a patient who's getting targeted temperature management after cardiac arrest. Yeah, a more moribund patient population. So 
like I said, this trial was in France, nine ICUs. They enrolled patients at a GCS of 12 or less who were expected to be intubated for at least two days and had an admitting diagnosis of head trauma, stroke, or subarachnoid hemorrhage. They said they enrolled patients with coma, i.e. GCS 12 or less. A patient with a GCS of 12 does not have coma. Yeah, yeah. That's like, fair. I mean, they, they they still could have brain injury. Yes, I agree. But is but it? I was like, wow, 12 is a is a pretty pretty high bar. Like, I think my GCS may be 12 just you know, after a post-call day or something sometimes. So what I I found funny was, isn't one of the parts of GCS verbal? Yeah, of course. And so you're intubated. Right. Your GCS is going to, like, I think at best be 13 if you're intubated. Yeah, no, I, 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 12 is, like I said, 12 is a, 12 is a tough bar here. They do stratify their enrollment by GCS of eight or less. Yeah. So they recognize that 12 is a, is a broad inclusion criteria. They, uh, like you had mentioned, they had specifically excluded patients who had a cardiac arrest, uh, but also coma from a head tumor inf- or infection. And so, I mean, at least for you and I, that's a lot of the patients that we take care of with a coma, just kind of right off the bat. Patients were ro- enrolled within 12 hours intubation and 48 hours of admission. So patients admitted with a stroke that, you know, decompensate on day three and gets intubated aren't, aren't eligible here. The randomization, like you said, is... The other thing I'd say about the inclusion criteria, and I, I just don't have a good grasp of what this population is in, in the patients that I take care of, but they also excluded anybody who'd already received antibiotics. Yeah. And so I'm trying to think of, you know, the comatose patients that come to us, what percentage of them have already gotten an antibiotic before they came to us because somebody was worried about some infection or something and they just threw an antibiotic at them versus they come in clean without having actually gotten antibiotics. And in full disclosure to the the listeners, uh, Eddie and I in general do not take care of a ton of acute strokes uh, and we don't take care of a lot of traumatic brain injury, like true trauma brain injury. So those populations may be more pure and not have as much antibiotic prior to seeing us as our patients, but lots of our patients get antibiotics before they walk or roll through the ICU door. I mean, and then, you know, also full disclosure, just like, you know, I steal ideas from smarter people than me, like Hallie Prescott, you steal ideas from me. I was going to bring that up in about three paragraphs later in my outline. I always tend to be about three paragraphs ahead of you. Yeah. Three, they bring this up in their figure one. So I know you talk about the consort diagrams and how, well, it doesn't tell you much because it just depends on how many patients that they, quote, assess for eligibility. But uh, they assess like 2,200 patients for eligibility, and they only enrolled 345, so a pretty small proportion. But a third of those, like 750 of those, were excluded because they already had antibiotics or they already uh, or they were planned to get antibiotics. So, I mean, that's a third of patients kind of right up the, right up the front. That, ans- that yeah. doesn't answer, but it gets at the question that you're talking about of how loose we are with a single dose of antibiotics. Well, and I think the, the next step in this is, is it gets to a question of how generalizable are these results. They, it took them seven years, oh, sorry, not seven years, uh, four and a half years, to enroll 345 patients from nine ICUs at eight centers. So, I mean, this is a pretty select population. And then, as you pointed out, they screened 2,200 patients to enroll 345. So they excluded 85% of the patients that they that they screened. So I think, you know, if we're thinking every patient that's coming in with a GCS of less than 12 is going to meet these inclusion criteria and potentially be enrolled in this trial, I think it's probably the other side of the coin. It's probably a less likely event that 
they would be the population that was studied in this trial. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very fair. But I mean, part of the question is also, well, first is, do you believe the results, which we'll get into? And the second is, well, how difficult or easy is this to implement, right? So if this, if you had a trial that was wildly positive and you definitely want to go ahead and do it and you want to create a protocol around it, well, this this patient that they're admitting is fairly rare, it seems like. Yeah, I agree. We kind of, we glazed over it a little bit, but the intervention was uh, one dose. A single dose. A single dose of two grams of ceftriaxone versus a saline placebo. I suppose this is where you come in and say the saline placebo caused all the problems. <laughs> the single dose of saline placebo, That's uh, like, which probably was 150 milliliters. Yeah. That caused the problem, Todd? Yeah. Yeah, it's, we're just killing people in these trials. They also mentioned that the centers performed univor- uniform VAP care otherwise, which I won't read out, but are reasonable and include you know, head of bed elevation, hand washing, enteral feeding, also prophylaxis. They also note that centers don't normally use selective oral or digest- digestive decontamination uh, in this, in, for the centers in this study. Their primary outcome was VAP, which they use a standardized definition for and had central adjudication for each potential VAP episode. And I guess we've talked about using VAP as an outcome before, but do you want to just kind of rehash that for listeners? Yeah, I think uh, I did an ID journal club last week, and a lot of the discussion was about well, what's what's your definition of VAP? And I think a lot of these trials you know, try and use an objective definition of VAP, but they also end up with a definition that's super, super sensitive and maybe less clinically applicable than a more specific and less sensitive definition. You know, in this one, they use the CPIS score, which is common. You had to have all three components of a clinical, a radiologic, and a microbiologic indicator for VAP. But that's the part that gets me, right? So like like these, specifically what we talked about with Amica and Hale, and then this one as well, if there's a microbiologic component and one of them is giving antibiotics, either IV or through the ventilator, well, yeah, I would kind of expect there to be less microbiologic criteria for a VAP. Yeah, you think they've rigged the trial, rigged, quote unquote, the trial yeah, to not, not in their ins- benefit because... Not in an insidious way, but just like the way you defined your outcome makes me think that, yeah, that's going to, that's, I would expect that to decrease microbiological cultures. Yeah. So using that theory, you would think that uh, potentially acetaminophen may decrease the risk of VAP because it'll make it so people don't have fevers and then they don't get the clinical part. uh, And they can't, even though they have a radiologic and a microbiologic point, they may not meet the criteria because they don't have a clinical point. But exactly using that as an example of a, of a different potential intervention affecting a different part of the VAP diagnosis. Yeah. No, no, I get it. I, I completely get it. And it really, really troubles me when that's the only outcome that they find a difference in is, you know, hey, it decreased our ability to detect VAP. Oh, okay. Uh, and didn't do anything with duration of mechanical ventilation, yeah. mortality, that's, those that's sorts of things. That's right? Yeah. Right? That's, you're sort of like, okay, well, of course it decreased, as you said, of course it decreased your, your ability to detect VAP because your cultures have been sterilized by antibiotic. Although this one is a little bit less of that, I think, in the fact that it's a single dose of an antibiotic, but but still it is an antibiotic. The secondary outcomes, as you alluded to, were evaluated on day 28 or discharge from the ICU, whichever occurred first, included late VAP, any VAP, ventilator-free and antibiotic-free days, timed SBT, ESBL by rectal swab, 
uh, neurologic outcomes and mortality. They also evaluated neurologic outcomes, hospital and ICU free days and mortality at day 60. So a lot of emphasis on VAP there, and that's what they were powered for, but includes the clinical outcomes that we think are important. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's fairly routine in what we're seeing in VAP studies now, where the primary outcome is the incidence of VAP, and then the secondary outcomes are components of the incidence of VAP or other ways of, of detecting VAP or defining VAP. And then the other secondary outcomes are clinical outcomes like duration of mechanical ventilation, time in the ICU, and mortality. We already talked about their figure on the consort and how just you know loose we are with single doses of antibiotics anyway in our patient population and it seems like in this patient population as well. The median age is 56 to 57. There's about 45 to 50% female. The BMI is 26 it was about a third, a third, a third for indication between stroke, subarachnoid, and head trauma. Most patients had a GCS of between four to eight, uh, which kind of goes to that coma point. A lot of them were actually truly comatose. I found it a little interesting that most of the patients had an elevated white blood cell count in ICU admission defined by a blood cell count between 10K and 19K. I would have guessed yeah, that. Yeah, which uh, my institution would get you antibiotics. Yeah. <laughs> I would have guessed that not to be 80% of the population, but I guess, you know, trauma can elevate your white count. Bleeding in the head can elevate your white count. Uh, yeah, you'll cut this from the podcast because you don't like it when I say things like this. But to me, in many of these diseases, leukocytosis is what I call the O2 phenomenon. Your body is stressed, right? And when it's stressed, what does it do? It demarginates white cells and it drops white cells and you get a leukocytosis. So while we use it as this great predictor of infection, it's really nonspecific and doesn't doesn't really have great discriminatory ability in detecting an infection or not. When I uh, started reading the trial, that's just something that st- stuck out to me, that I didn't really expect them to have such a high white count, but I guess you could qualify with a white count of 11 or 12 for that in that categorization. I clearly mis- misinterpreted the table two as we talked a little bit off pod. Uh, Todd, do you want to tell me what yeah, this table two numbers is, mean? Table two is confusing, I agree. But the reason that there's two numbers divided by a dash is because patients can contribute more than one outcome event to the analyses. And so a patient isn't actually done once they have their first VAP. They could get a second VAP. Uh, And in fact, at the beginning of the results, they say there's 160 cases of VAP in 139 patients, which tells you that at least, I don't know, 21, I think based off of math, patients or up to 21 patients had more than one VAP event. And so these numbers are, you know, early VAP is 23 early VAP occurrences in 23 patients in the ceftriaxone group and 51 early VAP occurrences in 51 patients in the placebo group. So those, it was everybody only, patients only had one early VAP. So as an illustrative example, if you had two over one, you had one patient with a VAP that got VAP twice. Correct. Yeah. Anyway, this was a positive study. There was a significant decrease in early VAP, 14% compared to 32%, with a hazard ratio of 0.60 and a 95% confidence interval that goes from 0.38 to 0.95, p-value of 0.03. I know you can say, well, you don't believe the outcome or don't believe the VAP diagnosis. We think the stacking the deck using antibiotics, yada, yada, yada. But the more standard clinically relevant outcomes go in the same direction. Ventilator-free days are 9 compared to 5, which had a p-value of 0.02. And as a remember, more free days or a higher number are better. Antibiotic-free days are 21 compared to 15 with a p-value of less than 0.0001. Mortality was improved from 15% compared to 25% with a p-value of 0.036. And that's at 28 days. It was 20% versus 30% 
with a p-value of 0.074 at day 60. Uh, you can argue that all the findings are pretty fragile, right? So a few patients can flip your outcomes to not significant, but all of them going in the same direction has to count for something here. Any thoughts? Believe it, not believe it? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, right? This is what we've been saying with VAP studies all along is, oh, yeah, show me a clinical outcome difference and maybe I'll, I'll consider it. And they have clinical outcomes that I think are the outcomes that we think are the pertinent outcomes. How long are you in mechanical ventilation? Do you survive? Do you not survive? There's a couple things that give me pause. One is it's really hard for me to believe that they see a 10% absolute reduction in 30-day mortality by one dose of two grams of ceftriaxone on admission. That might just be the beauty of it, Todd. Maybe. And and the fact is, is as I said before, you get better, better at saying I'm just wrong. It, just because it I don't understand. It doesn't mean that it's not real and it doesn't happen. You're not demonstrating right now that you're getting good at saying I'm wrong, Todd. But the one thing that bothers me about all of these VAP studies is, is that their incidence of VAP is like a huge incidence of VAP. Their overall incidence of VAP in their control arm is all VAP is 36% of their patients got VAP. And I was laughing as I was leaving the presentation of this because as I was walking out, I heard another conference attendee behind me say, man, if my incidence of VAP was that high in my ICU, I'd get fired. <laughs> I was kind of like, that's a valid point. Um, you yeah, know, when, I mean, you, when you're in the admin side of things, you're trying to make a definition that minimizes your VAP incidence, yeah. right? But when you're on the research side of things, you want a higher event rate. Could right? you imagine how hard administration would be on us if a third of our patients that were ventilated had VAP? Uh, I, I mean, would just change the definition. Lord, we'd never get out of meetings. It would be it would be unbelievable. So uh, having said that... But it didn't matter, right? The, yeah, having said that, the, the outcomes that you care about, I think that I care about at least, are not necessarily a reduction in VAP, but are, does this get you off the ventilator faster? Yes, no matter how you define VAP... Decrease mortality. It improved patient outcomes. Yeah, so, so single dose. all of that then gets you to the, okay, do you believe it? Do you believe one dose, two grams of ceftriaxone within 12 hours of being mechanically ventilated if you have stroke, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or traumatic brain injury, because those are essentially the three populations they enrolled, uh, decreases overall mortality. And, and they lose their significance by 60 days, which just tells you there's some non-acute things that come into mortality. People don't recover neurologic function and they stop and that sort of stuff. But, you know, at, at 28 days, 28 days, yeah, they have a mortality difference that's significant. The, I mean, I think bringing this brings in their table three, right? So it kind of makes sense when you're talking about the organisms that they recover. It would, there is a big difference in decreasing H-flu or haemophilus influenza, um, which I think ceftriaxone would cover. I think the, the one thing that if I'm bringing this table, talking a little more holistically about the table, and this is what I was talking about, maybe there's a geographic difference, is that they had a, a, a marked but present reduction in MSSA, but they only had one case of MRSA. And I feel like in the United States, our community MRSA rate is probably a little bit higher than one in 350 patients. But decreasing a single dose to decrease MSSA and H flu, I don't see why I shouldn't believe that. Yeah, I think the <clears throat> the reason that you shouldn't believe it is because it suggests that H flu and MSSA are important and big drivers of clinical outcomes in these patients, which, you know, they're not bugs that are that hard to treat. They're not that resistant, that sort of stuff. So it, it just, I think, is hard to get your to get your head around. Yeah, so it's, it's not hard to treat, but is there something to saying that I'm never going to let it be a problem? Right. Right? Like a stress ulcer isn't hard to treat, but why Tell would me. I... 
depending well, on how much they bleed. Yeah, it, it can be. But in general, it's not hard to treat. But why would I let my patient get a stress ulcer? Why would I let them get a pressure ulcer, right? We're doing prophylaxis. That's the whole point. Yeah, you didn't go to that session because you came home early from SCCM. But there was a session about was, whether we should stop doing stress ulcer prophylaxis in our critically ill patients. Oh, I missed that, clearly. I was yeah. trying to dodge your presentation. Yeah. I feel like if I was there when you were presenting, I had to be there. And so I just decided to fly home early. Yeah. I think the other side of this is you have to ask yourself, okay, if I am skeptical of the results and maybe I don't believe them, what's the downside if I do this? Yeah, this is the whole ecological assessment thing from Sudoku, right? Yeah. Like, well, what is the downside? And they did some rectal swabbing for ESBL to try and see if they increased didn't resistance. Really find much. Sort of they didn't have, find they much. They list their safety outcomes and find much. The C diff didn't find much. Right. But like the antibiotic stewardship committee is saying, well, it's not about those patients, right? It's about the unit as a whole. It's Correct. your entire package. And it's not about you know when you've done this in nine icus and 345 patients it's what happens from an ecological standpoint when you do this over the course of a decade in your hospital and you include you know 4000 patients that you've now given a dose of ceftriaxone to that part's hard because those data we're never going to get uh, so that's the potential downside is about antimicrobial stewardship and resistance patterns um, but outside of that a single dose of 2 grams of ceftriaxone is pretty benign i mean how it's many times not does it markedly happen? expensive how many times does it happen like not not on accident but like how many times does it just happen and he's like oh well they had a pe instead i guess we can stop the antibiotics yeah yeah agreed i mean those patients aren't in this because they were excluded no but, but i'm just saying in general yeah. how many times you do patients get a single dose of antibiotics iv antibiotics yeah it's fairly common and, and then the other thing that i wonder about mechanism is that ceftriaxone crosses the blood-brain barrier and these patients all had traumatic brain injury. So does ceftriaxone do something in the brain, whether it prevents an infection from the brain, a subsequent infection after injury, or does it have, I don't know, anti-inflammatory properties or some sort of non-antimicrobial properties within the brain that that might be contributing to some of the better effects? I I'm hypothesizing and postulating here. I have no idea. But at least if I thought through that, then I might have a more reasonable chance of saying, sure, one dose of two grams of ceftriaxone is what's saving 10% absolute reduction in these patients' lives. So if you, if you came across this patient in your ICU, they hadn't got antibiotics for any reason at all, are you giving them a dose, a single dose? I think I probably am at this point. I think that's, I think that's where I landed too. I was expecting you to land on the other side. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a reasonable person, and when I look at the data, I usually go with what it suggests to me. So That's just decidedly not true, the reasonable person part. All right, mailbag time. Uh, where to begin? Uh, let's start with an email from Arun, who is a cardiologist who had a comment on mint or transfusion targets in MI. He said, great pod, mostly agree with you guys, blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's the interesting part. First is that all the outcomes seem to be against the restrictive arm in mint that there was 2.4% more events in the for the primary outcome in the restricted arm. The 95% confidence interval barely crosses one. The components of the primary outcome, which are MI and death, were higher in the restrictive arm. Cardiovascular death was higher in the restrictive arm. And on the flip side, there was no difference in adverse events. 
Uh, he made a second point, but any thoughts on that, Todd? He's making the argument that if this was Bayesian, you'd be saying that there was a high posterior probability of harm with the restrictive strategy for uh, restrictive transfusion strategy and MI without any without much increase in the adverse events. No, I think it's a consideration. But the 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 other part that I'll bring in that I think is a consideration is I don't know what it's like at the listeners' hospitals, but at our hospital. About three times a week, there's an overhead announcement to try and get people to donate blood. And if you do the the non-restrictive, the liberal arm, you're going to use more blood in these patients. And while there were no adverse events in these patients, is there an adverse event to the healthcare system that the trauma patients don't have blood or the, you know, bleeding GI patients don't have blood or, you know, what happens to the blood shortage if we do this? And, 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 and it's not hard. Just, it may not be reflected at our hospital, right? Because we're a trauma center. So yeah. we are getting the blood, right. but that's coming from somewhere right. else. Right. It, yeah, it's hard because... I wouldn't use that as a reason to not give blood if I really thought it was helping patients. But if it's sort of a, this is a little bit of a gray area, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't help, then I start thinking about, well, do I have enough blood to do this? And how does it affect other patients if if I'm using a lot of blood in an area where I'm not entirely convinced that it's necessarily giving great benefit to the patients? The uh, I think this is informed a little bit by his second point. He said, the other point that you all raised that piqued my interest was your expectation that transfusions would help a type 2 MI more than a type 1. He says he agrees that with a complete arterial occlusion, physiologically it doesn't make sense for transfusions to help, and Mint demonstrates that as well. But with a non-ST segment elevation MI, that you often have acute partial obstruction, so 70 to 99% stenosis. And physiologically, at least here, increasingly hemoglobin supply would lead to less myocardial injury downstream of the stenosis. He goes on to say that by this logic, the type 2 MI should also see a benefit, but the way he thinks about a type 2 MI are those with chronic coronary artery disease, not acute conclusions, uh, occlusions, and they have collateral vessels leading to a lot of heterogeneity in both both anatomically and in cardiac reserve. So just saying that type 2 MI population is, though our thought process is probably right, is probably a little bit more heterogeneous than what we typically see in the sepsis, just uh, you could have a potentially healthy heart and just have a supply-demand mismatch. Yeah, and the type 1 STEMI MI is more heterogeneous than we talked about. Yeah, so I think... I mean, they're not all 100% occlusions of the vessels. Yeah, so we, uh, so I think that's just pointing out that our definitions and the way we thought about it being not cardiologists, maybe it was a little bit simple. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever done any of those personality tests, but I am definitely a concrete sequential every time I do it. So concrete thinking, I already had a problem with this in medical school. Concrete thinking is supposed to be a bad thing. Right. Yeah. It's like oh, like it's like oh, like you. I remember sitting. It's at, a badge I wear with honor. Yeah, I, I, I was sitting in this room and they were saying like oh, there's two chairs that are facing each other and they will go around like what do you see? And people are like oh, I see two people having a conversation. It's like maybe it's breakfast time right. and they are like talking over breakfast about a loss or a recent like difficult event. And I they get to me, I'm like I see two chairs that are facing each other. I see eight legs. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I always had a problem. I was wondering if there was something wrong with me. Well, 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 well. Those may not be totally related. Yeah. You could be a concrete thinker, which is okay, and there still are things that are wrong with you. Or it could be that you're a concrete thinker. thinker. There's things that's wrong with you. I'm a concrete thinker, and that probably means that something, there are things wrong with me too. That's another way to interpret that. Yeah. Faults by transposition. Love it. Absolutely. 
The next email is from Georgios. He says, great job with the show. He enjoys the friend, friendly jabs. Uh, I think, first of all, I don't know my jabs are friendly. You know, I'm, I'm going for the body. I'm, I'm looking to lay some hurt. Let's make that clear first. His first comment was about when we were talking about delaying intubation as a holdover from our management of hypoxic respiratory failure from COVID. And you had mentioned that the observational data seemed to lean towards worse outcomes with delaying intubation. He said that his group put out data in trust critical care recently that supports, I'm about to paraphrase, but supports that assertion that you made using SRAGE. I've asked you this before, but can you give me a 50,000 foot view of SRAGE? It comes up not infrequently. No. I mean, we're talking about serum rage. Yes. S rage. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, a pea body, a pea brain, pea sized brain. And my pea sized brain is, is that it's a, a marker of inflammatory condition that may be more specific to the kind of endothelium of the, of the lung. But, you know, to get in depth into the biochemistry and all of that about it, uh, we're way out of my league. Yeah, the same same here. But it, the way that I think it's been described to me as like the, hey, you don't understand anything about biochemistry, but here I want you to understand what I'm talking about is it's kind of like a like a troponin for the lung. But is it a high sensitivity troponin or a normal sensitivity troponin? Dorius and his team found that those who, patients who dodge intubation with high flow nasal cannula had a lower S rate than those whose conditions worsened. And now he provided all the caveats, you know, this is retrospective data, it's hypothesis generating, so on and so forth. But I mean, it's at least interesting. And, and it biologically makes sense, right? The more inflamed you are and the more inflamed your lungs are, the more likely you are to progress to worsen respiratory failure and progress from high flow nasal cannula to needing higher level of support. Whereas if you have lower S-Rage levels and less inflammation, you know, you might be able to recover with just high flow nasal cannula. And I think it does a reasonable good job of, at least based off of what you just told me, a reasonable good job of predicting badness in those patients. He, he also made a comment on ACORN uh, where he noted that his group also showed an association between anaerobe depletion from the upper and lower respiratory tract and is associated with mortality in patients with aspiration pneumonia, which goes in line with the gut microbiome data from Bob Dixon out of Michigan. I'm not sure I have too, too much to say here. I think it's probably worth looking at this data in ACORN, which we've talked about. But in the overall population, we didn't, we didn't see that uh, within the ACORN population. But it's important to remember that, you know, the majority of patients in ACORN were not in the ICU, and maybe the effects of anaerobe depletion doesn't have the same effect in a non-critically ill population. Yeah, I think that's perfectly a reasonable thought process. The final letter that we're going to go over here is a comment from Matt, who had a different interpretation of the quality of evidence from steroids in ARDS. So we've talked about it last episode, we talked about it at the beginning of this episode. Uh, and we, we talked about it, I think, specifically this at the beginning of this episode, where we said, well, the, the community, including us, you and I, Todd, were very ready to hop on Cape Cod despite there being variable data preceding Cape Cod and steroids and community-acquired pneumonia. But our stated hesitation for doing steroids and ARDS is that there's been heterogeneity or variability in the data preceding DEXA-ARDS. And so Cape Cod, DEXA-ARDS are similar quality, similar effects. And so why, why, there, why is there a different hesitation between implementing steroids in community-acquired pneumonia and ARDS here? Yeah, so I think there's a little bit of, of bias from priors and prior beliefs. Uh, and then the other thing I'd say is, is that, yeah, commu- severe community-acquired pneumonia does have some heterogeneity to it, but it's all infections. It's all like the same sort of infectious process that you know can have some heterogeneity but is in the same bucket, whereas a lot of ARDS 
has lots of heterogeneity, whether it's trauma, trolley, pancreatitis. But it's but I so I'm pulmonary versus extra pulmonary. So I'm I'm a little bit more bullish, I think. I'm a little bit more favorable on steroids and ARDS than you. All ARDS is inflammation, right? No matter if it's pulmonary, extra pulmonary, no matter the etiology, it's it's inflammation and you're giving them an anti-inflammatory drug. Yeah, I guess. Although I think Carolyn Calfee's data suggests that it's not all the same level of inflammation. She has found different subphenotypes and she, I think, comments that one of them is called hypoinflammatory, which they regret now because it's still inflammatory. It's just less inflammatory than the other one. But there's, you know, a difference in the level of, of inflammation. And I think those differences uh, may very well predict, prognosticate who might respond to steroids. Sure, I'm, but, I'm a sure, believer that you, part of the reason that steroids worked in COVID is because COVID had a lot of inflammation, like the immune system was revved up in many of these patients. Uh, and therefore, steroids uh, were beneficial in that in that situation. But these studies are like DEX-ARDS is in a heterogeneous ARDS population. So Agreed. even despite the subphenotypes, it's saying that, hey, it might be beneficial. Right. But it could be that what they ended up doing in that population is they ended up enrolling a higher percentage of the hyperinflammatory, and whereas just, other studies, it, yeah, other studies didn't enroll that higher percentage, and that's the reason they're not seeing the the difference. And I, and I think I'm hoping that in the next few years we'll have better understanding and better clarity on which patients may actually benefit from steroids with which patients with ARDS or severe community-acquired pneumonia, for that matter, may actually benefit from steroids and which ones either don't benefit or maybe even had harm, which is part of the reason when we put all of those together in multiple studies, we get a neutral result. So let me put to you this. I'm on service. I'm coming off service. I'm handing off to you. The day before you come on service, I admit a patient with severe ARDS or two days before, and I decide to start on, start on steroids. Are you stopping them? Yeah, I don't, in general, just change course like that on on somebody who's already had their course set. I mean, you we, we did this with the patient that you started on Simvastatin for COVID ARDS. Uh, and I, I'm just saying, I'm, I was true to my word. Continued the Simvastatin. I, uh, I was told we had to do it until 28 days or the patient left the ICU. We, when we talked about the so, Simvastatin. Unfortunately, and- she died from her liver failure from a statin, but... I mean, that's just decidedly not true. She left the ICU about a week ago. That week, when we talked about the statin arm of Remap Cap, I, oh, I know the data. We talked about well, it. Well, I'm just saying that I said that I feel comfortable with the side effect profile statins and I would do it. And you can't say that I'm not a man of my word. So I could say that, but in this instance, you were a man of your word. Uh, we can't mention all the emails that we get, but we do appreciate them. Thank you to all the listeners and keep them coming. They're fun. We have a fun discourse with them. I'll try to be better about bringing them to the pod in a more timely fashion. But that's all we have for episode 30. 30, Todd. We made it to 30 episodes. Yeah, that's kind of a uh, nice little um, mark threshold. Yeah. yeah I thought we'd make it to three. Yeah. We blew past three. So I don't know. How We're at log full greater than three. Yeah, uh, we'll see how far, how much more we keep going here. Um, but it's episode 30 of the ICU Edin Toddcast. If you have any questions for Todd and myself or anything you want us to talk about in the future, hit us up at the ICU Edin Toddcast at gmail.com. On the social at ICUcast, Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-N, or at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, and congratulations to the authors. Thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro outro music. Thank you again to everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go run the country on a set drive.
This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable, but we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.